This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. her and no Emily Kemp won't be joining me today but have no fear she will be back for season four which will be airing very very soon I promise and the reason that Emily is not in the studio with me today is because we did a special bonus episode and I'm so so excited for this because it is an incredibly educational piece that I wish I would have had years ago when I was going through the legal system and trying to navigate what that looked for me as a survivor. And so I am so, so excited to introduce to you today Bailey, who I've been working on this project with for the last maybe two months. So Bailey, would you love to introduce yourself to the We Are Her podcast listeners? Yeah, for sure. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. I'm Bailey Brubaker. I grew up in Kalispell, Montana, and here in Bozeman, I am the DVRT coordinator, and we will get into what DVRT is here in a second. Yeah, and so this project means a lot to me, and I've been wanting to do like a panel or something educational for years now. And with the pandemic, it's really just put this off. And so when I reached out to Haven, which is a local organization that works with survivors, I immediately got connected to Bailey, who I hadn't worked with before. And she had this beautiful idea to really work with the people in in the community here who she works with every day and bring the knowledge they have in their brain and how they help survivors to a podcast form. So Bailey, I would love if you could share a little bit more about how this idea came to be and what exactly it is, because I feel like we're hinting at it and I hope people are getting excited. Yeah. So this podcast is really special because we are going to highlight the other side of, you know, other than a survivor going through this, we're going to look at the systems of this. What does it look like when you call 911? What are the questions that are going to be asking you? How many officers does 911 automatically dispatch if you need to call 911 in a, a situation? We're going to talk to a police officer and get the lowdown of what happens when officers show up at your house after you make a 911 call. And then if you don't need 911 or the police officers to come to your house, what does calling advocacy look like? What is advocacy? There's so many questions when you get into this system of what happens next. So hopefully this podcast will give you some clarity of what this is going to look like for you, how to be best prepared. And then we're also going to give you some resources here. Disclaimer, this is Bozeman, Montana and Gallatin Valley. And so if you're listening from anywhere else, obviously the system may be a little bit different. Their rules might not be exactly what our rules are. However, it's a general idea to help you feel more prepared if you're thinking about going through this process or if you have a loved one going through this process. So a couple of times you mentioned DVRT, Bailey, and I'd love if you could talk a little bit more about what DVRT is. Yeah. So DVRT is the Domestic Violence Response Team. 
Um, this team is made up of multidisciplinary organizations ranging from the 911 operators, patrol officers, probation officers, and attorneys. This team ensures that we are all on the same page with maximizing both safety and the well-being of survivors of domestic violence within the Gallatin County, and we're holding offenders accountable. So within our team, the main purpose is to educate the community, improve community-wide systems response and collaboration, and influence a statewide policy regarding domestic and sexual violence. So DVRT is this meeting that happens once a month, and it's been happening for over 10 years now. We're getting some awesome momentum. And I just want to say thank you so much to We Are Her for giving this opportunity to have a podcast and educate the community, which is our purpose. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. So before we let you hear the wonderful interviews that we've done, I just want to talk a little bit about our host. Our host is named Whitney, and I used to work with her, and she was a crime reporter at the newspaper here, and she'll get a little bit more into her background. But we really wanted to pick Whitney to be in this spot for the host today because she's worked in a different capacity with all the different type of people that she'll be interviewing today. And this has been her background for a long time. So I love Whitney and I'm so excited that she was able to help on this project with us. So one quick thing before we get into the episode, I understand that there might be some of you listening who have not had a great experience with law enforcement, legal advocates, maybe 911 operators. And I first just want to validate that that's okay. I am in that boat as well. And I think as we were going through this process, I always have that in the back of my mind. But I hope you know that the people we selected today are people that we feel very strongly in in this community. And I also want to acknowledge that they're human too. And while they have a passion for survivors, it's possible that there are people listening today who might not have had a good experience with these resources today. And I think that's valid. But I also know that they have a deep passion and love for making sure that the people they work with every day have the best resources. And so the point of this episode isn't to, um, the point of this episode is to make sure that survivors in this community, especially, but anywhere know that there are resources out there for you. And hopefully this podcast will shed some light on how you can access those resources and maybe have better information when you go to them. Because as someone who's been in this position, there isn't a lot of education, pre-education that goes into what contacting these people look like. And hopefully this can help more people have better experiences when they contact these people. So with all of that said, I will let Whitney take over. Thank you so much to everybody who's listening into this episode. I hope that it does nothing but benefit you and other survivors that you love in your life. Okay. All right. Uh, my name is Whitney Burmis. I'm the communications coordinator for Gallatin County. I've lived in Bozeman a little over 10 years. And in, in my prior job before I started the county, I was a reporter for the newspaper here covering crime and the criminal justice system. And I would read through every call that came into the dispatch center every single day for Bozeman and Gallatin County. And it's just really hard not to notice how prevalent domestic violence is in this community. And I soon learned that we're not alone in that. And covering domestic violence and writing about it and in a responsible way just became a passion for me um, because I saw you know, maybe a couple homicides a year in the, in the seven years that I worked at the paper and 
I can think of all but two were domestic violence related. So from, you know, a, a simple 911 call all the way up to the worst case scenario I was seeing in my job. And it just became so evident about what an issue this is here. And so anything I can do to support survivors and organizations that help survivors and agencies that help survivors, like my law enforcement at the county or the county attorney's office, I'm just always happy to do. And so I'm happy to be here and be part of this podcast. All right, now we have with us Dispatch Supervisor Susan Walker with Gallatin County 911, fresh off a 12-hour shift. So thank you so much for, <laughs> for joining us. We really appreciate it. Would love a little introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been a 911 dispatcher? How, how did you get into this work? I have been with 911 since 1998. I took three years off in there and then came back. I just wasn't ready to be done with it yet. It was kind of my calling once I got into it. So what is it like being a 911 dispatcher? How, um, how would you describe the job to people that don't know what it's like? Usually what it's what we're told or what people hear is that it's like minutes of boredom with, you know, moments of absolute terror mixed in. And that's kind of about the way it goes. You never know what you're going to get, what the call is going to be. Every day is different. And so that's kind of what makes it exciting for us. So Absolutely. All right. So, you know, we're talking about domestic violence today. So can you maybe just anecdotally, first off, talk about how often are you getting calls that are related to domestic violence, whether it be actual violence or things like stalking or, you know, is it a common call that it you is. guys receive? Yeah. Yep. I don't have numbers or anything. That would have been a good thing to have. But yeah, we get those quite frequently. So we do have a lot of training on those types of issues quite a bit so that we're up on how we can best help people. Absolutely. So kind of walk us through the process. So you get a call that comes into you that's domestic related. What are the steps that you take uh, once you get that call? Obviously, if it's a report type of call, if the person is safe and they're reporting something that happened at a different time, those are a little bit easier. We just have basic questions that we ask and then let the officers do more of the interviewing and everything. For in-progress calls, those are usually the ones that we get probably the most often. And obviously, the location, as with any call, is by far the most important. If we can get that from the caller, we're good, if that's all that we get. We're more concerned with the the where, what, why, weapons, you know, that type of thing. Just a brief explanation of what's happening, physical or verbal. We do want to know if any weapons are involved or accessible. And focus is on the safety of the caller and the people around and just... We're asking those types of questions so that we can ascertain that they're um, we're making them as safe as they can possibly be until the officers get there and can and can go into the interviews and, and figure out how to help everybody involved. And you mentioned that you're trained on these type of calls. How do they differ from maybe a different type of violent call that you get once you kind of figure out that this is domestic related? What are the differences in protocol for a dispatcher? Yeah, they're all pretty much the same. Our main focus is always on, of course, if any weapons are involved and safety of the people that are involved in it. It is um, it is obviously more personal than maybe some of the other types of violent calls that we get. So there can be, we do ask questions about people that are in the home, if there are children in the home, those type of questions too, just to make sure. And obviously if they can, if they're not safe, if they can get somewhere safe 
or get out of the situation safely and then be able to speak to law enforcement. So a little bit more personal than the other type of violent calls that we get, but basically still focusing on the safety of everybody involved. Gotcha. How many law enforcement officers do you typically have to send to a domestic violence call? Do they typically have more response than others? Any in-progress call or any possibly violent call is always a two-person call minimum. And then usually there will be others that go if they can, depending on what what the individual comments are regarding the call or what we're hearing from the caller. Are there specific types of law enforcement officers that are sent to those calls as opposed to others? No, we just send out, they're all trained just like we are. So there's no special type of officer or special qualification that they have. They're all qualified to be able to handle those types of calls. So I know with dispatchers, you often don't get to find out what happens after Mm -hmm. a call ends. Um, But are there ever experiences or, or opportunities for you to talk to callers a little longer, provide resources, maybe you know, provide that little bit of extra support if if the situation allows. Right. Yeah, we will for sure if we can. Usually it'll be like an area that may be a longer response area and we're waiting for help to get there. And if they're safe, sure. If they ask us questions, we can, you know, direct them where they may need to go. And but yeah, usually that's only in the instance if, you know, we're just waiting for someone to get there. Usually they happen pretty quick and we have so many questions we have to answer that we don't always get to that part of it. Makes um, sense. And the officers, I know they cover that because they have their packets and stuff that they give them that has a lot of great information. So we know that they're going to be getting that information once the officers get on scene. Now, I've heard something on social media about the calling and ordering a pizza. And when <laughs> yes. you're in a situation where you don't want an abuser to hear you, uh, but you need to connect to 911, yes. is that an urban legend? or, or um, can No, you- that's actually true. I actually went to um, a training. It was a national conference in Salt Lake when we heard about it. And I'm sure there have been others, but at that time, that was quite a while ago. And it was a Salt Lake dispatcher that had that happen where – Somebody called and said they wanted to order a pizza and the dispatcher said, this is 911. This is not, you know, Pizza Hut. And they said, I know I'd like, you know, a Diet Coke with that, too. And just the way they said it just clued him in that something was probably going on. So at that point, she just answered yes and or asked yes and no questions to the person. Is there someone there with you? And she would say, yes, there is. And yes, I would like some pepperoni with that or whatever. And she just would answer everything as if she was ordering this pizza. That was the only call that she was able to get out. And she'd been held hostage by someone. I don't know if it was someone she knew or not. I don't remember that part of it. But she was definitely in a bad situation and convinced this person to let her order a pizza. (laughs) And luckily, the dispatcher could hear, you know, active listening and heard that you know, this might be something rather than just hanging up and getting upset. So we are trained to listen for those types of things. Like if something doesn't sound right, it's usually not right. So just we refer them to yes and no questions just so we're keeping the caller safe because obviously the person that they are with is not aware that they've called law enforcement. So, well, even if people can't remember the pizza example, do you have tips to tell folks if they need to talk to you, you know, how do they call and and also stay safe without right. you know, being um, we, overheard? We do um, have text to 911. That is new in the last year or so. So sometimes it, every situation is different. And as long as it's safe and you're able to convince whoever is with you, 
that it's okay for you to text, you can certainly do that. That comes in just like a 911 call and it's just like a regular text, just back and forth. And you can let us know anything. We'll ask questions that we need to ask just as if we were on the phone with you. The other thing that if you do dial 911 and you don't want them to know if they've stepped out of the room or something, just put the phone where they don't necessarily see it, but just leave that line open so that we can tell what's going on. If you are able to get a location out, that's really important because, like I said, that's really about all that we need and the rest we can pick up from what we're hearing in the call And then, yeah, the pizza incident, or if you are calling, it seems like you're calling a friend or calling a business or something, that'll kind of clue us in as well. And then you can always have others in the home, sometimes a next door neighbor, you know, if they hear something, they'll tell them, please call for me. I may not be able to call, or sometimes the children, if they're a little older in the home, will know that when this happens, go ahead and call 911 and let them know what's going on and where we're at. And and then that will also keep that person safe, too. So those are some of the things that we like to, to tell people if they feel unsafe to call. So you mentioned text to 911. How exactly does someone text to 911? I know that might be a silly question, <laughs> but seems, how does it work? Well, the first time I picked up my phone and tried to do it, I thought, oh, this is crazy. But yeah, you just in the where you would put the phone number or the name is just 911 and then just send it. And so then they automatically, as soon as we pick it up, you'll get a message back that says, you know, this is Gallatin County 911. Do you have an emergency or what's the address, the emergency? And then just pick it up from there. Then it's just like a normal conversation. It will remain open until we close it. So that's good too. So that's good to know too, that it we don't lose that connection until we actually are certain that we're done talking to those people and then we'll stop the conversation. But but yeah, that works just just as if it's a regular phone call, so a regular text. So that's really cool. Yeah. The other good thing about text to 911 too is some people have very, very bad service wherever they're at. And we've had people like in the canyon, for example, trying to call in a, a crash down there and they can't call on 911, but they can actually get a text out. So if you can't get through for whatever reason because of where you live, you can always try a text too, and that may actually come through a little bit better. That's awesome. That's great to know. That's such a great resource. Anything else we haven't hit on that you would like to mention about, you know, the intersection between your job and and domestic violence in our community? Yeah. One thing that we've worked with a couple different resources that are trying to put things together for non-English speaking people in the community. And just to make sure that those people would know that you can always still call 911. Don't not call just because you don't speak. English isn't your first language. We do have a lot of resources. We have language line interpreters that work great. So we just will tell you to wait just a moment and it just takes a second for them to get on there. Any language that you can possibly imagine, they have people that can interpret for us. And we ask the questions, they ask the person in that language, and then they tell us back in English what they've said. So that works very well. We've done that several times. So anybody that is a non-English speaker, you know, we encourage them to, to call out for help. Don't let that stop you. We do also have some dispatchers that speak other languages. Some officers do as well. Possibly text to 911 and translation might be something that they can do if they English isn't their first language. Or maybe having someone else in the home call. Sometimes their children are very well-versed in English, but they may not be. So 
we can sure work through them too. And officers will also use Google Translate when they get on scene too. So there's a lot of resources that we can use. So we just want to ensure that they know that they can always call for help if they need it, domestic violence or any other type call. And if it's safe and possible, we always like to talk to someone that's on scene because it seems like we'll get calls from maybe family members or friends or something that um, someone has texted or called. And we don't always get the information that we need when we're responding over there. It's always better if we can talk to somebody that's in the immediate vicinity and knows more of what's going on. But again, that's only if it's safe. Sometimes that's the only option you have is to have someone else call in for you. And that's okay. And then a couple other things that we could mention is deactivated cell phones that are charged always dial 911. And I know that Haven has used those in the past for people that maybe are being stalked or or fearing that type. If they're not allowed a phone, sometimes they can get one from someone else. Or as long as those are charged, any of those phones that don't have service, you can always dial an emergency number with those so that you can always get through to 911 to us on those. And then lastly, just that the dispatch, the we're the first point of contact, so we're mainly the fact gatherers, and we just need to get a lot of information really quickly. And so we'll tend to just only need to get like the who, what, where, when, why, how, and weapons information. And the officers will be the ones that have time when they get on the scene that can actually dig into it a little bit deeper and, and feel free to tell them anything that's going on. But we tend to stick to mainly just the fact things. So that's just a good good thing to know when you call in that we try to stick to those types of of questions. So, well, Susan, thank you so much. We're not going to waste any more of your time. Go home and go to sleep. And thank you for what you do day in and day out. I don't feel like dispatchers get their due appreciation, but you are so appreciated and you guys do amazing work. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Awesome. All right. Next up in our seat, we've got Ruthie Barber. She's a legal advocate with Haven. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Could you please introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been in this work. Why'd you get into it? Definitely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. My name is Ruthie. I am a legal advocate with Haven. I've been with Haven since like May. I started as a volunteer and then started working in the legal advocacy office last November. So almost a year. And I I got into this work because it just it just popped up as a volunteer opportunity in the Valley. And I've always really looked up to Haven as like a really fantastic organization. Yeah, I just started working here and, and loving it. And yeah, I think that's the answer to the question. That <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, so legal advocate, what is that? That might not be a term people are familiar with. So tell me a little bit about what a legal advocate does. What's what's the type of work you do? Who do you work with? Give us the give us the lowdown. Totally. It can be a little confusing. I can help folks navigate the court system in on a civil basis. And a big thing here is that I'm not an attorney. I can't give legal advice or represent somebody in a court proceeding, anything like that. And I can't help folks with their criminal case. So like Ashley was talking about the victim services folks, those are the advocates that can help folks with their criminal case. But we do interact with them a lot because they usually 
refer people over to us and we can help them navigate getting a restraining order, which in the state of Montana is called an order of protection. And sometimes we can help navigate the system of a parenting plan or a dissolution, which is the same thing as a divorce. So those like family matters and restraining orders are kind of the the area that legal advocates sit in. So you had mentioned that you work with folks in on the civil side of of the court system versus the criminal. Could you maybe explain the difference between civil and and criminal? Yes. So civil versus criminal, the big thing there is that like a criminal case, a lot of times they they can interact, but a criminal case would be like a partner family member assault, something that started with law enforcement and either an arrest was made or a citation was made. And then law enforcement lets victim services know and those victim services will reach out to you. So if you've been reached out to by victim services as a victim of a crime, then that's a criminal case. Any civil cases um, are like a restraining order, a divorce, a parenting plan, which some people call a custody order. So civil things are like the non-criminal side, but a criminal case is when law enforcement's been involved, there's been a there's been a police report made and there's been a citation or an arrest. A good way to clarify too, like if you have a criminal case is like, oh, did Gallatin County Victim Services reach out to me? And I will say that not all counties have a victim services unit. So that would be reaching out to law enforcement to see if that's become a criminal charge. Awesome. I can imagine the court system is pretty confusing, especially for people who haven't been through it. Can you share some experiences, maybe some common questions people have when when you're helping them? What is kind of the the top topics that they really don't understand that you help them through with? Yeah. I will say that sometimes I get confused still, and I feel like attorneys even get confused sometimes. So yes, it is really confusing. Sometimes there's a lot of legal jargon thrown around. If one party has an attorney and the other party doesn't, that can be, a, that can especially feel pretty steamrolly. And it's, I, I always want to acknowledge that it's an imperfect system. And sometimes it doesn't give somebody the justice that they deserve. Um, and so I think that I, I always like to be clear with people that engaging this in the system may not be as empowering as you, as you deserve. And so part of what I do is providing that emotional support alongside that and helping folks realize that maybe this isn't the best avenue, but maybe it is and I can help you navigate it. I would say the big questions that I get from people are like, how long, you know, how long of a process is this going to take? Parenting plans and divorces can take a really long time. Orders of protection are usually pretty quick, but then there's all these different steps. And so I feel like a lot of my job is just demystifying that and talking through the process and making somebody, making sure somebody's fully prepared for like, what is the order protection process before you really jump in and file for this order of protection, you need to know that there um, is going to be a hearing where you potentially have to see your abuser and talk to a judge about what what happened in front of that person. And like, yes, we are here to support you in describing that and in like being in that hearing space. But sometimes for people, that's just not where they're at and they're not ready for that. And so, yeah, I would say the big like I, and I also get a lot of questions asking me for legal advice. And so I, I gently have to be like, no, that's not something I can do. But yeah, just timeline. And then also 
you know, people wanting to feel safe and wanting this, wanting an order of protection, restraining order as a as an avenue to make them feel safe. And sometimes it's really helpful and sometimes it's not. So just trying to really be upfront with people and, and giving them a fully informed approach so they can decide what's best for them. Awesome. So walk us through this process a little bit. You know, you a survivor has decided they want to take some action. They need a restraining order. How do they get connected to a legal advocate such as yourself? How does that process start? And can you kind of walk us through the steps that you would take? Totally. So like Ashley was saying that uh, often law enforcement will make like a handoff to an advocate. If you are an MSU student, you might go to the voice center. If you are not a student, oftentimes they'll refer to Haven or they'll give folks our 24 hour support line number. And if a survivor would like, they can engage in our services. It's completely voluntary. And that's something I forgot to mention. Legal advocacy as well is completely voluntary. If you want to file for an order of protection by yourself, that's totally fine. We don't have to be involved. So the the way that that starts, if somebody's looking for a restraining order, is they'll usually give our 24-hour support line a call. That line is great too if you are just wanting to talk about your what happened, talk like receive some emotional support, receive like other services, access to counseling, things like that. And so we can connect that person to our legal advocacy office line. And then we'll get a call or they'll walk right into the Law and Justice Center. Because we've been working kind of halfway remote, I always encourage folks to give us a call first to make sure we're there. But yeah, we also we have an office at the Law and Justice Center up in the Victim Services Suite. So we do accept walk-ins there if that's that's where somebody's at and they just want to come right in. So yeah, that's a good way to access and get a hold of us. And then as you come into our office, we try to create like a warm and safe space. And I try to just meet folks where they're at. If they just want to talk about what happened, they're not quite ready to file or receive that information, then maybe we're just going to do a little bit of emotional support and do some safety planning. And then maybe in a few days, they'll be ready to come in and file. So just wherever you're at, that's okay. And I'm going to be do my best as a legal advocate to be respectful of that and give you that support. And then once I explain the order protection process, the restraining order process, same thing to you, then we will go forward with filing for that. And then usually I just explain sort of step by step, like what's our next step after that? I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but. No, this is great. So do you continue to help a person who's filed for a restraining order through the entire process? Because I can imagine that, like you said, that can take some time to work its way through the, the court system. Are you available for those folks? through the, I guess, the the entire process it takes? Yeah, yeah. So that can look like they come in, they get some information about the order of protection, they decide that's not what they want right now. We just do some safety planning. And then maybe in a little bit, they decide this is something that I want to do. If they decide that, we help file that paperwork. Of course, I can't tell somebody what to write in there, but I can do my best to guide and really work through troubleshoot. You know, what do you think is best to include? Things like that. And then I go with them to help them file it with the clerks. And usually we do, we do hearing prep. We just call it hearing prep, but it's just a setting up an appointment to talk about what that hearing is going to look like. Sometimes it's one appointment, sometimes it's several. We can get into like the nitty gritty of exactly what you want to say during that hearing, how you're going to manage your anxiety, or I can just give you a general outline of what the hearing looks like and you're good to go. And then if you, if you'd like, I'm happy to go with you to the hearing. Um, I'll like me or the other legal advocate will accompany you and 
we are happy to sit next to you and support you during that hearing debrief after. And even if the order of protection is denied, that doesn't mean that our services end or stop. We're still there for you. Be that if you want to continue to engage in the court system and refile or just do more safety planning, think of other options. We're all about, you know, troubleshooting and trying to figure out how can you, you know, feel safe and continue on with your life in a manner that is is good for you. That's amazing. For anybody who might be nervous to reach out to a legal advocate and take that step, I can imagine a restraining order is a huge step for some people. And like you mentioned before, all those things like having to face your abuser in court, those those can be barriers, I, I, I assume, to even just filing. What would you tell a survivor who's thinking about it, who thinks it might be the right step for them? I mean, do you have any words of encouragement? Yeah. Or what, what would you tell people that maybe just are questioning it? Yeah, I would say engaging with our services or calling a legal advocate with Haven is not at all binding in any way. So if you just want to start the conversation and get some information, I'm not going to be like, you need to file this. I'm never going to tell you what to do. And I'm not going to judge you no matter how many times you come back or you decide you don't want it, you do want it. I understand that it's nerve wracking. And I see so many people that come into my office and are really nervous. And I will say most of them leave feeling at least like they've gotten some more information and they're feeling better equipped. So I would encourage you to reach out. And also if you're like, if your body's saying, no, I don't want to reach out, don't reach out. It might not be the time for you and that's okay too. So I would say, you know, our 24-hour support line is a great place to start. They have so many, so much information, so many resources, and can point you in the right direction. And if you're just like, I'm not ready for the legal advocacy, that's a good first step. Awesome. Do you ever provide you know, advice or have conversations with loved ones and friends of survivors? Can you talk about that? I mean, there's a lot of people who might want to help a survivor that they know. Do you provide any assistance to friends and family? Yeah. So I, I feel like I get those calls quite often. And sometimes it's a situation where, you know, that, that person that they're wanting to help is wanting help. And sometimes it's a situation where they, they see that, you know, their friend or family member is struggling and is, is in an abusive relationship. But that friend or family member doesn't see that, see it that way or doesn't want to receive help. And so an important thing that I always share with folks is that, you know, you can give them that information, make sure you're doing it in a safe way, um, make sure that, you know, you're not like leaving a Haven brochure on the table that their abuser could then see and think that they're engaging with that. But you can always give them that information. And the important thing is just to support them whatever decision they make, which can be hard, but the big thing is just knowing that they can always come back to you because abuse isolates. And so when somebody is in an abusive relationship, they will want to pull away, particularly if you're pushing and saying this is an abusive relationship. If they're ready to receive that information, then that's great. But I think that just being there as emotional support and being there as like, you can come to me no matter how many times this happens is huge. Just being that one person. I would say that's the biggest thing. And then logistically, you know, if when, if and when they're ready, totally give them give them legal advocacy information, give them Haven information, give them we are her information, get them connected. Ruthie, thank you so much for your time today. What you do is an 
amazing service for our community. And I just appreciate you sharing your experience and your expertise and all your kindness. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Whitney. All right. We have Detective Ashley Havren with Montana State University Police Department here talking with us. I'd love it if you could introduce yourself, maybe give us a little bit of background. How'd you get into law enforcement and how long have you been been in law enforcement? Hey, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me here. So, yeah, my name is Ashley Havren. I am a detective with the Montana State University Police Department. I've been with the department for 10 years. I went to the police academy out in Helena, just like all of the other police officers do in the state. And I've been part of the domestic violence response team since I'd say at least nine of those years. So I've been I've seen it kind of develop through the years and grown with the team. So that's been really fun. I'm also an advanced specialist with law enforcement in domestic violence response. All right. Well, it'd be great if we could kind of go through the steps of how law enforcement responds to domestic violence calls. So take us through it. Once you're dispatched, what happens? What's a typical call? And and kind of give us those broad brushstrokes of, of how that works. Sure. So once officers receive a call or are dispatched to a domestic violence call, it kind of depends on the level of severity that we're aware of at that time. But generally speaking, we want to get there as fast as we can to make sure that we're preserving life, to make sure that we can get that scene under control and de-escalate it as quickly as possible. And usually what that means is Two or more officers are going to head to that direction and de-escalate the situation and separate parties as quickly as possible, assess for injuries. We're also going to get medical going if there are injuries so that we can get that treated. And then kind of after that, we start working into our investigative process, which is preserving scene, but also interviewing each party separately and making sure that we're getting a well-rounded story of what's going on and what occurred so that we can make a good assessment as far as what we need to do next. So some of that interview and and investigation process really is, there's like a trick that we kind of use. It's not a trick at all, actually. It's fishes. So we try to learn more about the fear, the injury or lack of, um, the statements that are provided, the history, and then like the size of the people in comparison to each other. And then we sort of like assess what's going on. And we try to get those statements separately so that we're making sure that we're not getting like a biased or shadowed version from either one and they're not influencing each other. And so that we really get like a genuine account of what happened. While we're there, we're also looking to see if there are any children involved to make sure that they're okay and anybody else in the location um, to make sure that everybody's okay and accounted for. And then at that point, uh, we have to decide if there's a dominant aggressor. And if there is, then often we'll make an arrest and that person um, will have a no contact order for 72 hours. And that's really to preserve, you know, life safety. We want to make sure we we know statistically that often if we leave two people together that have engaged in some kind of violence, the risk of increased violence is higher. So we try to make sure that we are doing that separation, which is required by law and when we make that arrest. And then... We always, always, always make sure that we leave resources with the victim or the survivor of that situation before we leave the scene. So we're getting them connected to our victim witness program as soon as possible. And what that means is the survivor or the victim is getting all of their rights given to them so they know exactly what they're being connected with and what they're able to say. And we're really giving them their voice. And then 
after that, we sort of submit a referral to the program. And then the next business day, that victim witness program is going to reach out to the, the person and get them connected as quickly as possible. And then we make the arrest and get our report completed and make sure that everybody is good to go. So for you as an officer, how does responding to a domestic violence incident differ from maybe other types of violence that you respond to? Maybe I'm thinking, you know, bar fights or like how just emotionally, you know, how does it feel? What What's so what's different about it? How does it stand out? I think one of the biggest things really is, you know, we're we're trained uh, to know right from the get go that domestic violence responses are some of the most dangerous responses for law enforcement, mostly because they are so emotionally driven. There oftentimes are drugs or alcohol or other things involved that are also exacerbating the situation or these situations could be going on for long periods of time. You know, we think about the cycle of violence and who knows where we're at in that cycle with any case that we're going to. On top of that, Typically, these responses are at households, and we don't know as law enforcement what's in that house. We don't know what kind of weapons are in there. We don't know the layout of the house unless we've been there before. And so there's a lot of unknowns in a very known personalized space. And we also know that, you know, the lethality rate could be a lot higher. So when we go to a bar, most of us know the bar. Uh, When we go to, you know, a, a public space. A lot of us know those because they're in our jurisdictions, but we're not in people's homes all the time. So yeah, when there's a lot of unknowns like that and there's a lot of force behind it, potentially, the risk is really high. Is there any difference or any commonalities that you find in responding to domestic violence within a university campus uh, that might be different than the, the community as a whole? Or is it very similar to what, you know, Bozeman Police Department officers are seeing, you know, off, off campus? Uh, I think the biggest difference is, if I had to say anything, it's weapons. Campus is pretty restrictive. It's against policy. It's not against law. It's against policy to have firearms on campus outside of weapons storage areas. So oftentimes, I mean, we're always going to assume that there are weapons, right? We have to make sure that we're doing our due diligence and still being safe. We don't want to become complacent in our response. But oftentimes when we respond to something like this on campus, There usually aren't firearms, but we always we don't we don't assume that I will say like, you know, a lot of the ones that we've responded to that have been the more severe ones involve knives. Um, So really, if it's not one weapon, it's going to it's probably going to be another. Um, It's really just what's available to the people at that time. All right. You've arrested someone. What's the next step as far as medical care goes? Do you take folks to the hospital? How How do you get if a survivor is in need of medical care? What what happens next for them? Yeah. So officers on campus, we're not going to transport medical uh, in most cases. Uh, We're going to call medical to come respond to the location and do an evaluation of whoever needs it. If it's determined that they need some care or they need to be evaluated or transport, then that person will likely ride up in the ambulance to the hospital, which is just a few minutes from campus. And then once they're up there, they have access to our SANE program, which is our sexual assault nurse examiners program. And that program is really well equipped with some specialized team members um, who work specifically with higher level cases that involve sexual assault and violent crimes. And they will actually do, you know, a very good job of talking to the victim, making sure that they feel comfortable 
getting them the resources they need, including, you know, prophylactic stuff, making sure that they're medically okay on top of whatever happened, but also addressing any injuries that were that incurred during the incident. And we know this is a really underreported crime. Uh, what would you tell survivors who, you know, might be scared to call 911 for help? Uh, what, what would you say to them? I think one of the biggest things is really just knowing that there is support for them out there. And we want to make sure that they know that we have lots of specially trained people who really are there to help as best we can. And, you know, I think it really just I want to empower those people to feel like they can reach out because, you know, a lot of us do this because it's our passion and and it's what we love doing. And we want to make sure that we're providing a service to our community as best we can. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, the resources that officers have uh, to provide survivors. Talk a little bit about where the police job ends and the advocate's job begins. What can somebody expect in that kind of handing off of duties? Yeah. So on campus, it's a little bit different. We have some extra resources that we can offer people. But generally speaking, once the officer clears the scene and, you know, maybe somebody goes to jail, maybe somebody goes to the hospital or whatever the case may be. That's basically where the law enforcement action stops. And then it's passed off to the advocacy. And then that connection, like I said, is sort of made overnight, depending on when it happens during the week. But also with campus, we can submit referrals for our care program, which will also hook them up with additional resources regarding campus. If their schoolwork is being impacted, if they're, you know, if they're living on campus and that situation is being impacted, if they need emergency housing, if we we can also hook them up with our voice center, which is really great at helping people with any kind of domestic partner, sexual, any kind of those concerns. And then, you know, they can also come to us if they just want to file a report for informational purposes only. So if they don't call when the actual incident occurs, but they still want to report and they are able to do so, they can come to a safe place to file a report with us to keep on record. Gotcha. And as you mentioned before, you've been doing this quite a while, especially especially on the domestic violence side of things. What sort of trends have you seen in the last nine, 10 years that you've been working these types of cases? What is the, again, what does domestic violence look like on campus? That's a good question. So in the beginning of my career with MSU, I feel like we saw, this is anecdotal. I didn't come with any stats, but I feel like we definitely saw a lot more violent crime in regards to domestic violence. You know, when I was talking about that knife incident earlier, I mean, that was a long time ago and we're not seeing a lot of domestic violence type cases. I'm not saying they're not happening. I'm just saying they're we're not getting reports. And when I was working with the special victims unit around that time, we were seeing more of the like homicide, suicide type situations, the really high lethality domestic violence cases. And those are still happening, too. But anecdotally, I'm not seeing them happen as much as they used to. Other officers might have a differing opinion. But and then I think also one of the differences is we also have a high risk domestic violence team, and they're reviewing cases on a weekly basis, really just to try and make sure that we're addressing any kind of like high lethality issues or things where interventions could be made earlier on before they have the opportunity to escalate. Thank you so much for the work you do. It's really important. And thank you for sharing your expertise. I appreciate it. Hey, guys, this is Bailey again. 
Thank you so much for listening. And honestly, thank you so much for caring about domestic violence within the community that you live in. I just want to let you know, just like feel free to reach out to your community domestic violence center. Get more information, get involved. They're always looking for volunteers to help with direct service or indirect service. So just thank you again and have a great day. Thanks Thanks for for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.